0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the AWS Podcast. Simon Alicia here. Fantastic to have you back. 2017, it's here, it's happening, it's a real thing. Welcome if you are a new listener, and welcome back if you're an existing listener. Uh, A special episode today, but I'll get to the details of that in a moment. But I wanted to first welcome anyone who's new and give you a bit of an overview of what we do here at the AWS Podcast. So really what we try and do is mix it up. We have update shows, we have black belt tips, we have uh, architectural discussions, Interviews, conversations, deep dives. It's a varied and mixed bunch of things that we like to do. And really it's driven by you. It's driven by feedback from listeners. So if you ever want to give us feedback, podcast at amazon.com is the best way to do it. And of course, if you'd like to give us a rating or a review on iTunes or any other such podcatcher, that is always much appreciated. Now, one of the things that many people have asked me using that channel of uh, feedback is, can I get an audio version of the reInvent presentations from 2016? Obviously, there were many, many presentations, and they're all up there on YouTube, but uh, for some people like to listen to them audio style. As uh, we are a podcasting family, that's not surprising. So uh, I've got some great news for you. Uh, My good friend John Rottenstein did some great work in encoding everything into audio, and a link will be in the show notes with all of the reInvent videos available in podcast form uh, with RSS feed also on iTunes as well. So you can listen to your heart's content. In fact, I would say there's no reason for you to ever be bored again, because there's lots and lots to listen to there. So thank you, John, for doing that. And I hope you uh, all enjoy listening to the uh, episodes you choose to listen to. Now, today we have a special episode. Uh, It's quite a long one, actually, but a really good one around serverless and some of the nuances, things to consider, things to think about in the serverless world. This one's hosted by Brian Liston, who is a developer advocate for AWS Serverless. And he's got three guests. So you get a big amount of discourse here. You get Matt Wiegel, who is a founding team member at recently formed Stealth Startup. Uh, We have Ant Stanley, who's a former co-founder of a cloud guru and serverless conf and currently is the Serverless London meetup organizer. And he's also apparently a burrito aficionado. And finally, there is Ben Kehoe, who's a cloud robotics research scientist. And let's face it, that is all kinds of cool. So I'm going to hand over to Brian and the gang to take you through this episode, and I'll catch you on the tail end.
1: Uh, if you could just say who you guys are, um, give a quick background um, of your experience in the industry, and then um, maybe a quick intro into how you or your company is using Lambda or serverless uh as a whole, and uh, what languages you guys are currently using today.
2: Uh, thanks. Um, so my name is Matt Weagle. Uh I've been in the industry ooh, 15, 20 years now. For a majority of that, I was at Adobe, started as a contributor, and then eventually moved into operations and SRE roles. And... Um, Most recently was at NodeSource helping them move to the cloud. And as part of that, we were doing a lot of serverless and Lambda deploys primarily in Node for things like Flackbots and, you know, uh, low frequency customer management APIs, things like that. And I'm also uh, on the side working on Sparta, which is a Go framework for AWS Lambda and am the uh, organizer of the Seattle serverless meetup group.
1: Great. Thank you.
3: Uh, So I was an enterprise software engineer a long time ago, and then I uh, got my Ph.D. at UC Berkeley um, in a few different things, but uh, towards the end I was working in cloud robotics, Um, and then I joined iRobot, where I'm a cloud robotics research scientist, and uh, our production cloud supporting our connected uh, robots is 100% serverless. Um, We write uh, all our lambdas in uh, Python, except where we're, you know, using robot-side code that we're running in the cloud, which is generally C++, and we use some Go as well.
4: Yeah, um, um, uh, and Stanley, uh, Mark... My uh, tech background is quite checkered. I'm a bit of a journeyman. I think I've done almost every role in tech barring network engineer. So I've been a developer, I've been a DBA, I've been a sysadmin. Uh, but the last kind of, oh, prior to the last two years, I've did eight years as a solution architect in various organizations uh, from companies like Level 3 Level Three Communications to SunGuard Availability Services. Um but the last two years or so, um, co-founded a business called a Guru who were, or still are, um, a completely serverless startup. Uh, there's not a single server within a Guru, Guru. And within that, we decided to um, run the first serverless conf in New York. So I organized the first serverless conf in New York. Um, I'm no longer with a Guru, and a is still running serverless conf and still completely serverless business, and that business is going well. Um, and I've recently sort of started a new venture, everything serverless, um, with all the, uh, the entire tech stack being a serverless, Lambda-based tech, tech stack as well. Uh, so I'll talk a little bit more about that later. So, yeah.
1: Great. Thanks for the intro, guys. So, one of the topics that I wanted to talk about today with you guys is, you know, and keep this kind of conversational, is how you guys define serverless, whether that's personally or as a business. Uh, and how you define serverless patterns or architecture designs. And the the way we got to where we're sitting today with this podcast, so I'm going to do a quick screen share here. Uh, it all started on Twitter, as, <laughs> um, as most good things do. Uh, oh, nice. so, so Matt, Matt tweeted uh, during reInvent uh, that serverless is an implementation detail, not an architectural pattern. And then that, of course, started a nice little tweet stream um, of a lot of people responding and myself suggesting that we do a, a podcast and actually discuss it and uh, kind of get your guys' feels and uh, just have a conversation about it and see what you guys think. So I guess, Matt, do you want to start since you uh, you started the tweet?
2: Sure, sure. Sure. Um, uh- as with a lot of things on Twitter, it was intentionally provocative and misleading all at the same time. Um, and so I think where I was coming from was a lot of conversation I see on Twitter is about how serverless is the absence of servers. And that creates some, you know, um, some conversation about ser- serverless is just someone else's server in the cloud, serverless is servers you can't get to, but there's still servers and there's, uh, there, there's a lot of back and forth there. And I think I was focused more on that sort of conversational area. Um, so if you look at serverless as just a way to run existing code without sort of stepping back and reframing your application uh, from a different perspective, then yes, in a lot of ways it's it's uh, can be perceived as implementation detail. But if you take it as an opportunity to rethink sort of how your application could be structured and how you could modularize your functionality, then it tends more to the architectural pattern microservice conversation and I think um, that I I was just trying to uh, you know trying to figure out how we could move to that conversation rather than go back and forth about where's my configuration management system
1: I have
3: uh, two pieces to it I think that I mean certainly you can more or less lift and shift existing applications onto serverless uh, platforms I think uh, the term serverless itself is, uh, or rather the concept is a spectrum rather than binary. I had someone tell me that DynamoDB can't be serverless because you have to provision throughput. And I think that that's, um, there's a point in there, which is that it's less serverless than something where you never have to provision you know, your throughput, right? Uh, but that it's in the same way that Cloud is sort of a fuzzy concept, for an, but it's important. It, it marks an important concept, but the boundaries are fuzzy. Uh, serverless also marks an important concept, but the boundaries of it are not clear. You know, when you compare Redshift and BigQuery, Redshift, you explicitly select a cluster size, and BigQuery, which has very similar functionality, you don't need to do that. And so while I would say Redshift is... On the serverless spectrum as you're not managing those servers you're just sort of selecting a size for it um BigQuery takes that a step further and so in that way i think it's both that is an implementation detail piece right how much work are you doing to do that there's always going to be knobs and when you get down to it right it's often you know how at first how easy is it to get off the ground and then once you're you know a mature user of it you do want a few knobs to turn right you do want to know when you're provisioning throughput for dynamo at a certain point you need to understand how it allocates those throughputs over the uh the partitions that it creates right and i think that's always going to be true that you know once you're using lambda enough you're going to start using the fact that the containers are reused to cache some state. You'll still think of them as fundamentally stateless, but you can optimize what you're doing by having a little ca- local
4: cache. Yeah, I think my thoughts on the whole serverless thing um yeah the, the name is is extremely ambiguous. But like as, as Ben was saying, I think that definitely helps to a certain extent because um, it, it drives the conversation um, and, and helps people to kind of explore what you can and can't do with it. Um, but definitely, if, if you want it to be an absolute basic definition, I think Joe Emerson probably says it um, for me particularly best, it's a lack of sysadmins. You know, as sysadminless. You know, you're not doing those mundane day-to-day boring tasks and then it comes down to you know as ben was saying now the spectrum on you know what tasks and what level of granularity you have on that you know so you think on day one it's okay you don't have to patch your server you don't have to um worry about basic configuration management on on your underlying infrastructure you know that's that's maybe step one serverless you know and then you have that spectrum from there all the way to um to something like maybe like a big query which has literally no configuration options, um, virtually, you know, and then Lambda has a few configuration options, and so on and so forth. And there's, um, <clears throat> and that can also play as to what the whole value proposition with serverless is. It comes down to focusing on on the stuff that differentiates your business and not the stuff that that doesn't, the stuff that provides value to your users versus the stuff that you just have to do as part of part of running infrastructure. You know, if you weight, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah. yeah so I think that's what we're looking at. It. Yeah. 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 There, there's a lot of yak shaving with serverless, though, as well.
3: It's <laughs> true. It's not. It's not fully there yet. No. I think the yak shaving has moved right <laughs> yeah. now from being around your infrastructure into your tooling. Right. That we yeah. don't have. We don't have the ecosystem of tools yet. That give us all the all the pieces that we have if we're running, even in, you know in newer technology like like containers. I do think that, uh, you know, there's sort of two important aspects to the way that things are serverless. One is software as a service, and the other is functions as a service, which is often conflated with being serverless itself. Like, um, to, to me functions as a service exists because there isn't software as a service that does your business logic yet. Right. It's the one, it should be the thing that you do separate from what anybody else provides and everything else should be software as a service. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, there should be. I I agree with that. I think, and I think that's where the the real value proposition is, is it, makes it enables you to focus more of your resources on those aspects that differentiate your business from others. And then you can rely more on software as a service to complement the operational aspects. Um, just because you go serverless, uh, you're still responsible for availability and that requires, you know, understanding what are the what are the caching semantics that I can rely on in a Lambda container, for instance. Um, so you may not be responsible for low-level system provisioning and things like that, but you're still responsible for the services you do use, what kind of options and knobs are available to support your business?
1: Yeah, and you guys, you guys bring up some interesting uh, segues. So, I mean, talking about SaaS and talking about fast functions as a service um, versus microservices, whether that's uh, microservices uh, in a container or microservices built out on top of a serverless platform um, versus lift and shift. So, you know, it's an interesting topic to discuss because I hear a lot of customers talking about lift and shift and I, and I see some of you guys smiling and smirking and <laughs> I know some of you guys have opinions on this and I have opinions on this as well. I think a lot of us in the industry do. Um, and I'd kind of like to hear where you guys, what what your guys' thoughts on lift and shift are um, and how well it works for a lot of companies and whether or not that's a design pattern they should be doing or if they should be thinking about redesigning their application to actually take full advantage of these new technologies.
4: Yeah, I've got some opinions. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, it's it's the whole lift and shift thing. I think regardless, when you're changing platform, I'm I'm not really a great believer in lift and shift. I think you've got to do a level of transformation at any point in time. you know back in the day when everyone was doing physical to virtual migrations, um, there was what I thought was a really bad practice of um, imaging servers and doing PTV migrations, where essentially taking a physical server, imaging it and deploying it as a virtual server, and off you go. because then you and that uh, and if people think they can use that same kind of methodology going to a serverless or even microservices. Never mind server, microservices type platform whether it's a container based thing or whether it's a lambda thing um it's not necessarily going to work that well but i think you always have to i was always a fan of refactoring um even at that point you know so if you if you go back to that vm conversation where let's say you had a windows 2003 box running microsoft sql and now you want to run this in a virtual environment um that was a good opportunity to actually refactor that app and you know update the operating system um work out any of the kinks and also more importantly work around operational tooling that you would have in a virtual environment because everything's virtual and software defined you could do a lot more with it so by just doing a lift and shift in that regards of of taking an image and copying it you actually lost a lot of the potential value you could get out of the new platform um and if then do it the next generation going from a a cloud-based instance um sitting in AWS and then saying, okay, I'm going to move this app to container-based infrastructure. If you're not going to refactor that app, you're going to lose a lot of the benefits you you get from that, that base, that infrastructure. Um, But then when you go to the functions as a service um, world, you then, um, you can't, it's it's virtually impossible to actually lift and shift um, in that matter there you're virtually forced to to refactor that app which i think is actually a good thing um because then you can take full advantage of the the properties of of that platform and what the what the benefits it gives you um yeah i think lift and shift is is not there is is incredibly bad practice because all you're doing is just moving technical debt from one platform to another um it has to be avoided at all costs That's my personal opinion.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, it certainly is not always a great option. I think that, you know, occasionally, depending on your timelines and your resources, it can be. Uh, But I think once you start getting into the serverless realm, if you're talking about replacing uh, an existing, part of an existing application with some pieces of Lambda, like managing managing your infrastructure instead of doing it with scripts, doing it with scheduled lambdas instead of, you know, working with, uh, you know, replacing Kafka with Kinesis kind of things that can be useful as part of a, you know, mostly lift and shift endeavor. You're reducing your overall uh, reliance on legacy components uh, I do think that, yeah, when you're greenfield, when you're really going all in serverless, that's when it starts to change your architecture. Um, and that's where it gets into the microservices conversation. And I've seen arguments that well each you know each lambda function is a microservice, and in a sense that's true because you know you can invoke it directly and deal with it as if it was a microservice. But for me, when I think about it, when you're going serverless, your call graph is now your component graph. And in that sense, you have to look at your infrastructure to find out how tightly coupled your functions are. And if you have little clusters of functions that are all you know closely coupled, and those are tied to other small clusters by sort of sparse links, then you're operating with something that looks more like microservices. You can draw boundaries around them. And put up API gateways between, or something like that. Uh, if you have a tightly coupled web overall, then you're deploying a monolith that just consists of Lambda functions and other and other components.
2: Uh, I agree with that, and I think that circles back to what uh, what I was trying to get at with your initial. Tweet was that it is certainly possible, although difficult, to deploy uh, a highly interconnected call graph of functions in serverless. But I think that you know, you're losing out on some of the major benefits, which is the ability to partition your domains into smaller, uh, smaller graphs that have sparse links between them. Um, and then you start to move the conversation into, well, how do we decompose this into microservices? Um, but that also requires a certain level of Institutional and cultural support in order to get there, um, because that sort of pushes you know some of the things you might have been able to, not quite conceal, but maybe not formalize within say uh, an application that had a a single entry point and had an internal router where you could share some state across. Now you maybe you need to put that on the outside and figure out how are we going to externalize that in Lambda. So you're sort of shifting some of the complexity to the outside, and that may be okay, um, but it's certainly you know. The opportunity that serverless presents to do that comes with its own set of trade-offs.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's absolutely one of the conversations that I end up having a lot with customers when they they come up to me at a conference or online and they they ask about doing a lift and shift of an application. And while it's absolutely feasible, as Ben talks about, you know, and and we have customers that do it and I'm sure some of you have done it with certain pieces of, of your infrastructure or your, your applications. Uh, you know, one of the questions I always like to pose is, do you need to lift and shift? Is it possible to rethink the way, since since you're going through this thought process already of lifting and shifting into a serverless mindset, does it make sense to actually take the time and think about how we can break this application out into, you know, these separate Components, these separate call graphs, and, and make sure that they are taking the the, the fullest advantage of serverless components, right?
4: Yeah, that, that's a really interesting one for me. Um, I run the the London serverless user group, which I need to kind of reboot in the new year. But um, I have quite a good view of what a lot of London company, uh, London based companies, are doing with serverless, and and the UK adoption is predominantly enterprises, not startups. Um, and their instances. I like the one company called Thomas Cook, who are a, a very large travel company. They make about four billion pounds a year. They they're using Lambda quite extensively um, on the for to power search within their their platform. Um, and that's a an example where they kind of decomposed their traditional application, and they took one function within that, and they built um, a holiday search service purely powered by Lambda. Um, leaving the rest of rest of the, the, the app untouched and essentially extracted that app, decomposed that particular service. Um and I think that's a good way to adopt it is, is you don't necessarily say, okay, we're gonna scrap everything and start again. You know, do it service by service, decompose it, understand the trade-offs you're making and actually get more comfortable with it. And you can get you can get value out of that really, really quickly. Um and yeah, you can deploy a highly scalable independent services really quickly. Um The other interesting thing is where I've seen companies do that is that they tend to do it with the most critical piece of um, critical service within their entire app. Um, And they've normally done that not out of um, being brave but more being forced to do that because the alternative of um, completely re-architecting and running container-based infrastructure is just too much heavy lifting for them in the short term. It's a lot quicker to get something up uh, Lambda powered um, in the short term to solve this pressing business need about that one particular service that doesn't scale. Um, yeah, and
1: it's interesting too, because we see, we do actually see, I've seen them talk to customers who go through similar processes where they have a single component of a larger application that they want to, let's say, prototype or uh, test out in a serverless world, right? And they end up taking advantage of something like API Gateway and routing a certain portion of their traffic, a certain request of their their REST interface to Lambda and the rest of it back to their normal stack. Um, so that's definitely a super interesting use case. And I think um, it's definitely something people should look in. I think all these use cases are super valid and I think it's something that people should uh, definitely keep in mind when they're looking at serverless as a as a whole.
2: Yeah, I've seen that as well. And I think serverless and Lambda is a great, great option for strangler patterns to see how much of your application you can gracefully migrate, um, because the initial investment is very, very low. And there's a lot of things you can leverage. So it's very easy to prototype things and see how they're going to behave and gain confidence and help ease the transition from your existing architecture to more, uh, more, more fully supported serverless deployments.
1: Anything out there?
3: No, I think I think that uh, I think that covers it. I think it's interesting to talk sometimes about. Uh, so Joe Emerson, I think, provides a uh, a unique voice uh, in the serverless <laughs> community. Well, specifically, not just that he has strong opinions, but specifically that he says <laughs> that he would rather implement on Elastic Beanstalk than Lambda for the moment because the tooling is better. It's more well understood. And he can get off the ground quicker. And then the other, the other factor being that, you know, for serverless, right, if you're – this isn't necessarily about standing up an API gateway and building an application on the cloud behind it. You can have a thick mobile client or, or you know, web app, single-page app that is then conversing with multiple services, whether they're all on the same provider or not. You know, he likes Firebase and PubNub and all those – and uh, in that way, for startups, being able to iterate much quicker. And I think that that's an interesting path to go that is, also falls under the serverless umbrella. I don't have a lot of experience with it, uh, as our use case is very different being an IoT. But uh, I think it's an interesting pattern that doesn't get enough discussion.
1: Okay. Um, So I guess we can only jump into the next question since it kind of is a good segue from our our existing topic, which is how would you guys like to see the community evolve around serverless adoption and serverless? Obviously, I've heard you guys talk about tooling, so I'm sure I'm going to hear that again in this question. (laughs) Uh, But uh, are there anything in specific that you'd like to see the community doing? Uh, Or companies doing? And this, I guess, this question also somewhat falls back into the, um, a little bit of the topic we just had on how people should be migrating or how they should be thinking about these patterns. But as a whole, for serverless adoption, what would you guys like to see the community be doing?
3: The number one thing that I see lacking is in security that there are existing static code analysis tools that when you talk to those vendors, they say, Oh yeah, we can analyze all your code and trace down all the things. And it says, well, all my code is split up into little tiny functions that mostly just make SDK calls. And those vendors then say, Oh yeah, we can't really help you. And you go to the existing you know, sort of cloud security vendors and they say, yeah, we can analyze all your security groups and, uh, you know, your Knuckles and all this stuff. And it's like, well, I don't have any of those either. So you need something that's going to look at that full application, right? That trace those SDK calls inside the code into, you know, CloudFormation or Terraform to find out where they're actually going. And then make sure that the policies that are assigned to that match, you know, the usage and aren't overly broad Right, and uh, there's nobody that's.
1: Yeah, are you kind of? I'm just trying to extrapolate your thought out a little bit. Um, are you thinking of something that's would be akin to a integration test of multiple? Just go with me for a second. An integration <laughs> test of multiple serverless functions. So, an, let's take an entire REST application where each API call is a separate. Serverless function. And an integration test is a test of the entire system. But the output of that is all of the functions that were used and all of the calls those functions made as part of that single integration. So, well, that sounds like X ray. <laughs> <laughs>
3: um, but, uh, and I think that's useful. I think what I'm thinking of is more static analysis. Hmm of, you know, that you can put into your nightly build so that your security team can make sure that the stuff that's rolling out the next day is is going to conform to the standards that are put in place, mm-hmm. right? That okay. all of a sudden it's, you know, that this Lambda function is now making an extra SDK call inside. And that's why this permission was changed. But that permission that was updated is now overly broad. So they can go and say, "Sorry, I'm going to reject this," and tell you, you know, so kind of trim, expanding, trim on some the, of those things.
1: So kind of expanding on the way Chalice automatically generates your IAM roles for you. Have you guys played with Chalice?
3: Yeah, and I think that's that's an important part. Is if you can state, I mean, if you can you can start by stating this is what this lambda function requires, and this is where it's provided in my application, and then auto generate those policies whether they're going up directly against other resources or against an API gateway. Um, And so you're doing it against execute API or whatever it is. I think on the integration testing front, another missing piece is uh, real integration testing for graceful degradation. So as an example, we use AWS IoT, and we put from there into Kinesis. And if Kinesis is acting up or you know, we're over our shard limit or something. It's going to throw errors that are going to go back to that, the IoT actions that that communicate with it. And that may end up with some log messages, but we have no way of a priori making Kinesis generate those and knowing what they'll look like out of IoT. So we don't have any way of instrumenting for that. So if it's something is going wrong, we're not sure that we can see it. Right. And so this is where like the, the notion of chaos monkey becomes much more difficult when you control many fewer parts of the system. And it's not clear how to get that notion back because I'm not sure I want (laughs) there to be enough that can make Kinesis do poorly because in prod that's, you know, you want, to, that to never happen
2: yeah the, the fault injection knob is a dangerous knob exactly <laughs> yeah. i mean we just think th- if you think
1: about it too like we we have the mobile hub and we have the ability for mobile developers right now to build and test out their apps in the cloud right one of the features that was recently announced is the ability to um basically mock out low latency or high latency yeah uh cell phone service so maybe i'm in an area where i have 3g or 2g service how does my mobile application work yeah and and you are right right having that knob in a production environment can be scary but it can also be useful when initial development
3: you could imagine maybe it's enabled on a like when you create an account whether it's whether it exists at at
1: at the point of creating the account, you have a checkbox of whether or not you want this account to have this function. And from that day forward, that account is no longer a production account.
3: Right. You could also, so we also, what we do today is we inject a library that, that we wrap all of our SDK calls. And so we, when we want to do this, integration testing, we inject a library that goes into that wrapper and says, I'm going to, you know, muck with all of these SDK calls that you're making based on some input it pulls out of a DynamoDB table somewhere. So it says, you know, 10% of calls add a second of latency or, you know, on on every call return, you know, some 500 error. Or, you know, on this DynamoDB call, actually write the record, but return that you haven't. So at the points where we do control it, we're able to inject uh, some of those errors and see what happens. But the more uh, and more serverless you go and the more integrations that services offer between themselves, the less you get that
4: control. You're almost talking about a serverless chaos monkey. If you think about what chaos monkey does, essentially, it does inject errors within your infrastructure.
3: I call it monkeyless chaos.
4: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No monkeys were were harmed in the making of this chaos. <laughs> yeah, that that is the whole Netflix uh, philosophy, you know. Um, yeah, configure testing and production, you know. Um, and build for that, you know, build for failure and and create failure so that make sure your application can handle it.
3: Um, I, I do think that some of what Chaos Monkey does is just exist to remind you that you're in a distributed system. And when you're building a serverless application, because you're crossing all these API boundaries all the time, you're more aware of that. And so some of the pieces that Chaos Monkey does... Is less necessary uh, if you're building sort of a native serverless application because you're thinking about that from the start. But you still need many parts of the observability of degraded of degraded systems for testing when you really turn that knob up to see how do we how do we respond under real pressure?
4: Yeah. 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 I think, but yeah, going back to the original question, I think testing is definitely something that needs to improve, and we need to have more standardized ways of of doing testing. I, my current project, I'm looking, I'm writing everything in JavaScript, JavaScript on the front end, Node.js on the back end, mainly because I'm a sadomasochist, but <laughs> <laughs> also because it's one language. Um, well, I say one language, it's multiple versions of one language um, with syntax differences. Um, but from a testing perspective, it's trying to kind of like trying to implement and that's what I spent most of my time the last few weeks on. is just trying to do the whole tuning to get it up and going. But um testing, trying to do incremental testing, doing unit testing, integration testing, thinking, okay, how we're gonna do load testing, then security testing is a good one as well, you know, how to injecting errors into um the API calls and you know, I'm finding stuff out there that sort of works. At some instances, I'm looking to borrow from what what stuff's already out there um, at the moment. So, like testing testing an API, you know, there's a framework called Super Test which you can use with another JavaScript framework called Mocha, um, and that that kind of works when to test your for into an API. Your unit testing, um, taking advice from TJ's behind the Apex framework so is always like write libraries and test those libraries, and then import the libraries into your function because um, it cuts down what you need to test within the function and doing things like that so I can use as much existing tooling that, um, that is out there, but actually still doing end-to-end testing is still a little bit of a challenge you know, um, and definitely something that needs to be addressed and not just in terms of tooling, also in terms of best practices. You know, There's, there's no nice medium blog post out there that says, This is the best way to do end-to-end testing in a serverless environment. I know know Ben's written quite a few really good topics, uh, posts on the topic, but um, there definitely needs to be more information and more best practice on that.
2: Yeah, I would echo both of those. I think I think I, I look at serverless as one really good way that resonates with Lean um, and it helps you get to a market sooner, but you know part of the lean model is pipeline and jazz humble continuous delivery and that overall life cycle of developers have their own serverless cluster and then it goes to master and then we have unit tests and integration tests and load tests and canary tests and you know what is the what is the model where a set of developers are working together on a logical unit? Um, how does that go through a larger pipeline to deliver? Business functionality at the end, where we have visibility into what's going on, and we have uh, we ensure that there's Polo for all the lambda functions and things like that. Um, those kinds of things, I think, are still emerging. I know Code Pipeline and Cloud Formation were recently announced to integrate and Code Build as well, and those are parts of it. But I still think you know the larger here's a here's a best practice for how to manage a team and have them merge and have that go to production. I think that's yeah. still in open. It's-
1: so what I'm hearing both of you say is you want Ben to write more blog articles. Yes, I, I am
2: definitely saying that.
1: Yes, Ben, I need you to write more get, blog I'll articles. Get, I'll get right on <laughs> it.
4: Yeah, yeah. New ben, full-time job. Yeah, actually, on that, you're talking about the whole operational processes of it. You know, the, the debates on uh, mono repos versus kind of splitting up your multiple um, repos within your organization. You know from a microservices level, you know, do you put everything into one repository? Do you split up repositories? So each team has a repo or to work on. Um, that's, it's a weird internal debate I keep having with myself because I'm, you know, trying to get an MVP out and it's kind of just me right now, but hope, hopefully things will scale, but I find myself working across multiple repos because I'm saying, well, long-term service X will be maintained by a team and, you know you want they want to they need to have complete control over their repo for that service so I don't want to put everything into one repo though it's creating a lot of management chaos for me in the, <laughs> in the short term yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know what is your what are your guys opinions on that <laughs> <laughs> uh, one repo multiple repos a repo per lambda function
2: Uh. I would. You know, a quick, a quick, I have
1: a. I have a quick answer. Why you guys think of your longer answers? I think they both have merits. Personally, I think they both have merits, but it really depends. And this is going to be such a PR answer, but it really depends on the project. Yeah, I completely the other agree. Day.
3: Yeah, I agree. It, it also depends on the tooling. Yep. I think some tooling fits better with a mono repo. I think yeah. once you start getting into that like, auto-generated policies bit, multiple repos gets a little trickier because you're talking about between services. So that how are you... You end up with you know using a tool like uh, repo or whatever it is uh, to manage multiple repositories at the same time. But at the same time, a monorepo definitely creates organizational problems for,
2: for some people. Yeah. 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 Yeah,
1: That's a tough topic. Go ahead, Matt.
2: I was just going to say more or less that it is a tough topic. I think it depends on, you know, where you're coming from. And a lot of times you don't know where you're going to end up. So I think it's all provisional and path-based what works now. Uh, And as long as you can maintain some level of flexibility and say, in principle, I could tear this out if I needed to, then, you know, that that seems like a good option in the short term.
1: It's good to hear you thinking about it too, though. I mean, the fact that you are developing something right now, and you're thinking in the future, a team is going to be building out this individual component and owning this individual component. As generally, we do think of like you know, if we take the the Amazon um, methodology of the two pizza, you know, the two two pizza team size, right? Like <laughs> once your team gets above two pizzas. You know, you're know, you breaking it out into smaller functional organizations. And obviously, that could be a whole nother topic and <laughs> not something we need to talk about, but it's interesting that, that, that you're already thinking about that in the design of your application. Um, but it sounds like, obviously, circling back and kind of summarizing all of your guys' thoughts was having better tooling leads to better decisions, design decisions, and testing decisions, and repo decisions ultimately right
4: yeah yeah, yeah definitely. definitely um actually uh, on this as i, I wonder when you got to do something decent with card nine. by the way um
1: <laughs> you i'm so not I, actually been, <laughs> i'm not actually segueing this you're actually broke up and i couldn't actually hear the question <laughs>
4: <laughs> i was gonna say when you guys gonna do something with card nine because um, yeah. you know when Amazon acquired Cloud9, I started to kind of use it as a development environment. So I've actually just carried on using it um, because it works quite well. But you know, having a full end, be able to do full end-to-end development and full deployment, uh, a, a stack within a, a platform. So I know um, I, I'm moving towards that as well. And Cloud9 would be a really good option on the on the Amazon front. Um, uh, the, the quicker you guys... Can get a can give a, a full end-to-end process within that Amazon platform would definitely um, definitely help a lot of us. Should we say?
1: Yeah, I mean it's definitely something that you know we hear multiple customers asking for is that um, you know streamlined end to end process, either whether that's through the console or whether that's through um, you know first class citizen tooling, you know things like Chalice or Sam, right? Uh, yeah. It's definitely, you know, obviously something that we're focused on. Obviously, with the release of Sam at ReInvent um, and Chalice earlier this year, so uh, I think it's something you'll see coming in the space um, and more focus from our team on those types of topics.
3: Cool. It seems like uh, again the the IDE that you're in needs to have an understanding of your project layout in a way that you can jump around between your Lambda function definitions, right? When your Lambda function is four lines and three of them are SDK calls, you want to be able to jump through those SDK calls to wherever it's either defined in yeah. CloudFormation or uh, where there's code defined for another Lambda function if it's invoking you know, the Swagger file for your API gateway that's calling a Lambda.
1: That's a super interesting concept if you extrapolate it out with X-Ray and SAM and other services, right? So if you had an individual, this is obviously just talking, right? So if you had like a function that was wrapped in X-Ray and as part of your editor or as part of your testing when you did a test against that, you could instantly jump over to the DynamoDB table that it was calling and look at the provision throughput on it, or instantly jump into the CloudFormation template in, uh, you know, the CloudFormation designer and see exactly where that component was configured originally. Kind of like yeah. you, kind of like you have already in, in editors like JetBrains or something when you've got a massive Python application and you you want to jump to where the definition of this call is defined. Exactly.
2: Yeah. So that's
3: interesting. And I think if X-ray can move from post hoc,'ve I've seen where the calls are made be, by watching it, right Where you may have trouble exercising lesser used code paths right to a model where if it's Sam, right it you can upload that into X-ray and it will generate the model without you ever having to run it.
1: Introspection. Yeah. Cool. Well, I'm going to change topics real quick. We don't have that much time and I wanted to get um, two more questions into you guys real quickly. So uh, one of the things I wanted to end with was, um, and obviously we've had to, talk a lot about a lot of good topics today. Um, migration, fast, um security, integration, testing, design. Just quick. 60 seconds each. <laughs> what advice would you give people in the community when getting started with serverless? And why don't we just do the same order we did before? We'll start with Matt.
2: No, no, we have to reverse it. Okay. It's fine. <laughs> Let's do that.
4: Actually. <laughs> Ant, Ant, why, why don't you right, thanks guys. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. So I think one of services biggest dangers is, is, is that it's really easy to get something viable and valuable up really, really quickly. But then people tend to underestimate complexity when you start to want to scale this out and get larger teams working on it. And um, you want to actually build really large scalable applications that don't have three or four Lambda functions that actually have multiple functions. I think it, that it, the, the ease of use of, of getting something valuable really quickly kind of often sets people up for failure a little bit later. Um, so I think it's the big thing is don't, don't think it's it's easy. It's there are trade-offs. Yeah, you you get rid of a lot of um, heavy lifting um, on the infrastructure side, and you can get something out there really quickly. But when you want to scale and you want to um, build a team around it, you've got to think about those operational processes, um, and, and probably you know try and do a bit more work up front and setting the operational, getting your pipeline going uh, before you just start going hell to leather um, developing code because when you're down the line and you need to make changes to the code and you don't understand all these little um, interdependent microservices and you don't understand the, de- the dependencies because you've just been building, um, you- you've got to be – you don't want to be in that position where where you've basically created this haystack of microservices built on Lambda and you don't understand how that haystack works. Um, I think that that's something people definitely have to watch out for. Um, because you'll you get Lambdas for all, essentially. Um, you've got to, got to keep your Lambda controlled. Um, <laughs> I think that, that's definitely something to watch out for for me, yeah.
1: Great, Ben?
3: I, I think uh, there's two things. The, the first one is that Lambda memory size changes your CPU and I.O. power as well. Uh, so many people miss that. <laughs> Repeating it whenever possible is, is useful. Uh, but the, the big thing is that, you know, a lot of people look at, at serverless and they think no ops, and it's definitely not no ops, but it's not just less ops, right? It is that you, you move a lot of the ops burden to the provider, but in doing so, you trade off observability. And so once you're doing that, uh, it changes the relationship between the provider and the consumer of those cloud services, because you now need to sort of have a trust but verify system where you need to know what their uptime is like so that you can expect, uh, know what to expect and respond appropriately. And so it, it definitely changes the nature of operations for it in a way that I don't think people are expecting or talking about enough.
2: Uh, yeah, I'd agree with Ant and Ben, and I think that um, I think it's very easy to get things up and running, but the the unit of deployment is not necessarily the unit of design. So when you're thinking about the area of responsibility for your service, it's extremely easy to sort of you know uh, create sprawl, which then creates these observability and operational issues elsewhere, and then you quickly run into well. I want to partition these so that I can not reason, but at least sort of, you know, isolate them to some degree. And then running into things like, well, now I need a discovery service. Do I write a Lambda discovery service so that they can discover each other? So it's not as though, you know, I had a coworker used to say, you just sort of squeeze the balloon um, where the, where the the pain goes. Um, It's different ops. It's not no ops. And it's not, it's not zero ops or some other, equally offensive hashtag uh it's different ops you're still responsible for understanding where that pain is and what you can do whether that's whether that's fault injection whether that's unit testing to help mitigate that because ultimately you're still writing a distributed system that has all the the joys associated with that
1: yeah these are all these are all great great pieces of advice yeah and i i would also uh you know from my perspective uh reiterate what Ben said. And, and, you know, I, every time I, I speak with people, I try to reiterate the fact, you know, that it is a single dial, right. Changing your memory footprint gives you more <laughs> resources. And uh, it's something valuable that customers sometimes overlook. It's in the documentation. Um, it's in the FAQ. We talk about it, but uh, it's something to think about when you're designing your application for sure. Just, so I guess, uh, we'll leave with final thoughts. And the one last question I wanted to ask you guys, this should hopefully be a quick one. <laughs> uh, what was your favorite uh, thing announced at reInvent this year? doesn't have to be serverless. It can be anything.
2: Uh, code build.
1: I'm going to go with batch.
4: Uh, I'm going to go with green, green grass.
1: Oh, different answers from everybody. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. I wanted to thank you guys for taking the time today. It was really a pleasure speaking with each of you. I uh, hope you guys enjoyed it, and uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you very much. Thanks you. Thank you for having me. Well,
0: that was great work by Matt and the team, and I hope you enjoyed that special extended episode. As always, we do love to get your feedback. AWS at Amazon.com, and as ever, until next time, keep on building.